0: So our scripture reading um, this morning comes from Matthew four twelve through 17, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Neptali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned From that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand It is good to be with God's people especially this morning as we look outside and are once again confronted with just how quickly the world around us can change. Gone is the temperance of fall. Here is the blanketing of snow and the promise of winter. I have lived in this town most of my life and it never fails that the first real snow of the year catches me off guard the sudden nature of the transformation you know what's going to happen you know it should have already happened and yet still it catches me off guard the immediate change that the oncoming of winter brings to our life it changes what what yard work we have to do it changes how we maintain our houses it changes how we drive it changes how we dress it changes so much of our lives just with the change of the weather No matter how mild of a fall we have, no matter how much extra time we get past when we normally would have had snow, there's always something that we meant to finish, something we knew we were supposed to do, that was forgotten, that was put off. I have another day to do it, I have another weekend to do it, and then bam, snow, and now it's either really inconvenient or impossible, and we have to wait till spring. With each sudden change of season, is my prayer that we would be reminded that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. May the sudden onset of snow and winter be a reminder. May it teach us to consider our days. May it teach us to never presume upon tomorrow what we are commanded to deal with today. And may we, like John and Jesus after him, faithfully proclaim repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because today is the day to repent and to believe for tomorrow the judgment might arrive well this morning we are continuing our study of the gospel of matthew and if you'll bear with me just for a few moments i think it might be helpful to give us a reminder of the context of this gospel to where we have gotten to this point. Well, Matthew began in this gospel by tracing the lineage of Jesus. In that genealogy of Christ, Matthew prepares his mostly Jewish audience for some truths that were going to be very difficult for them to accept. Especially that the Messiah of Israel came to save men out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just ethnic Israel by his lineage Matthew shows that Jesus came from the nations and according to the promise made to Abraham the one whom he began the genealogy with Jesus would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth Matthew relayed for us the miraculous nature of Jesus's birth and the events surrounding it how even while Jesus was very young he was recognized as the one who was born to be king. And he was worshipped by the Magi, these mighty men, these kingmakers from the east. Jesus' life fulfilled prophecy that he was born and con- conceived and born of a virgin, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was driven to Egypt, and even that he would end up in Nazareth and be called a Nazarene. Of course then Matthew jumped ahead in this gospel to from when Jesus was just a young boy to when he was already a man grown. And there we found Jesus' cousin John the Baptist on the scene. He was on the public scene before Jesus was and he was preaching a message of repentance and the kingdom of heaven. And he was doing this in the southern parts of the Jordan River valley east of Jerusalem. John proclaimed a very hard message for the people of Israel. He proclaimed that they needed to repent of their false religion, repent of their man-made righteousness, and be made right with God. And why did they need to repent? Because judgment was just around the corner. The arrival of the kingdom of heaven was the guarantee that judgment would soon follow. The call was urgent and of the greatest importance repent of your false religion repent of your man-made righteousness repent of your traditions and turn back to God or you will perish along with the religious leaders of the day judgment would not be turned aside the choice for the audience of Matthew here was would they perish with the nation of Israel or would they embrace, embrace God's salvation escape well in the midst of this ministry of John is where we find Jesus entering back into the picture he came down from Galilee to be baptized by John after publicly affirming by being baptized the ministry of John and in doing so identifying with his people and their need for repentance after this Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and it was there during this time of temptation these 40 days of temptation and fasting that Jesus showed that his faithfulness his ability to succeed were Adam on behalf of all men and then Israel as the people of God and then every one of us in turn have failed we are daily tempted and we daily fail. Yet Jesus stood firm under the greatest temptation, or as the author of Hebrews put it in chapter four, fifteen: "For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." Well, after this encounter with the devil and Jesus's victory in the wilderness, Matthew moves forward again to the next stage in the ministry. Of Jesus the beginning of his public ministry the beginning of the time when the torture would be passed from John who had come as the forerunner to prepare the way for Christ to the Messiah himself well before we get into our text this morning just join me in one more time in prayer father we come to you needy we come to you acknowledging our unworthiness, acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging our dependence, acknowledging our utter and complete dependence on your Son. Even so, Father, we know, because your Word has told us so, we know that it is in that weakness that we find strength. father give us ears to hear from your word may your spirit take the words that are spoken and use them to conform us to the image of your son Father, break us of our sin reveal the hidden corruption that is within that we've been hiding or ignoring bring us to greater repentance and greater faith and dependence on Christ. May we cast aside and shatter every idol and rest in Christ. Father, keep me from being a distraction to your word. Keep me from confusing. If necessary, stop the mouth of the preacher so that the truth of your word will be clear and heard. May Christ be magnified. May your word be faithfully proclaimed. All for your glory. We pray these things confident because of Christ and by his name. Amen. Well, in verse 12 of our passage this morning, we read, that when Jesus had heard that his cousin John had been arrested, he left the area and returned back to Galilee. Matthew doesn't tell us exactly how much time transpired between these events, between his temptation and his return. Yet it is likely, when you look at all the Gospels combined, that some matter of time had passed. And it would be during that time where John's influence would have waned. And Jesus' influence would have waxed, where John would have decreased so that Christ would increase. Matthew tells us in chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, the reason that John had been arrested. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, the bro- his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, and it is not lawful for you to have her. John was bold. And John was arrested for doing just what he had been called to do. John, when he saw, he looked upon the sins of Israel, especially those who were proud, especially those who were confident in themselves. And wherever he found this sin, he declared God's disgust with it. He declared that it was not okay. It was not acceptable. That they were not allowed to remain that way. John warned that people needed to repent and be made right with God and he would carry that message even to the leaders of the land and he would carry with that message even if it cost him when it cost him his head. Herod Antipas was the son of King Herod who ruled at the time of Jesus' birth. After the death of his father, the land was broken into parts with Antipas Controlling the region just east of the Jordan and the region of Galilee. And the land of Judea was at that time then under the direct control of the Roman Empire. Well, as Jesus withdrew, he continued to preach the message of the kingdom of heaven. Yet he would do so primarily from the region of Galilee, not in Jerusalem and Judea, as we might have expected. Well, as, as we should expect with any action taken by Jesus, the decision to withdraw from that region was purposeful and it was timely. It was not an action of cowardice or fear. Far be it from us to attribute those kind of reasons for anything that Christ would do. Like everything that he did on this earth, this action, this withdrawal from that region served the greater purpose of his being faithful to the work that the Father had given to him. See, the, the desire to press in, the desire to force the issue, to want to stir the pot that so many of us would like to do at times, the, that urge to just go and fight, to, to cause some kind of immediate conflict and resolution. Often, that urge for that immediate satisfaction and conflict comes from pride rather than prudence or real courage See, it was a wise decision for Jesus to withdraw from that region after John had been arrested because even though John to that point had been the most prominent voice the one calling for all the people to repent the one proclaiming the kingdom Even though John had been the one who had directly attacked Herod, who had challenged him and called him out for his sin, Jesus was and would be closely associated with that same message. Herod's eye would be searching for anyone else who might challenge his authority, who might call out his sin, who might cause the people to turn against him because of his actions. Galilee was still under the rule of Herod Antipas, Yet the physical distance from the region where John had had influenced all these people would separate Jesus from John, would separate the cause, less immediacy in the trying to stop him from what he was doing. It would still be quite some time before Jesus would fall back on Herod's radar. Well, did Jesus retreat because he was afraid of conflict? Or did he retreat because he was afraid of standing up to the rulers of the day? Of course not. It just wasn't the right time to force the issue. Jesus had more work to do on this earth before he forced the issue, before he pushed things into a final and decisive conflict. Well, there are a number of recorded times in the New Testament where we see Jesus not doing something because it was before its proper time we see that here as he withdrew Uh, we see that in his reluctance to show his power at the wedding feast in Cana in John 2 4 we see that when Jesus refused to go up publicly to the feasts of booths and then cause a scene and and cause more that conflict to come to a head with the Pharisees and Sadducees in John 7 8 and we see this when Jesus withdrew from the crowds because the people were conspiring, and they wanted to take and make him king by force. Yet he knew, even though he was king, he was born to be king, he deserved to be king, he knew it was not the proper time, so he backed off. And that was in John 6.15. And these are just to name a few. There's a number of times as you read through the New Testament where he'll say, My hour has not yet come. This is not yet the right time for this. These things will happen. Similarly, as you heard last week in the temptations of Christ, he was tempted with things that ought to have been his, that he deserved. The praise and the worship of all the lands around him were his, as the Son of God. Yet it was not the right time. It was not the right way. It was not the right hour. Jesus never retreated from a conflict, or from hardships when they served his purpose. Jesus never softened his message or backed off when those in power tried to pressure him to retreat. In fact, as we will see very plainly later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus reserved his harshest words, his strongest attacks, his greatest condemnation, for those who had the greatest ability to do Him harm, for those that were in fact possessing of the greatest power in the area. Yet Jesus had enough wisdom to not be goaded into conflict when it would not serve His purposes and was not according to His intentions and obedience to the Father and I I pray this for myself, and I pray this for each of you as well. May we have His wisdom for restraint and His boldness to act in their proper times and in their proper proportions. Well, if you look through the Gospel accounts, it appears that the bulk of Jesus' earthly ministry would take place outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, outside of that central hub of Jewish identity and religious life that we might have expected it to be in. Most of his earthly ministry was spent among the outcasts of Israel, among those who were considered second class or unimportant. And it is with these that Jesus would show himself merciful, and compassionate. And I would encourage you, as we work through this Gospel of Matthew, watch, keep track, keep a running tally in the back of your mind the contrast in the way that Jesus responded to the lowly, to the meek, even if they were gross sinners, as so many in the time wanted to call them, how He responded to those who were lowly and meek and outcast versus how He responded to the religious and political elites in Jerusalem, those who appeared to have it all together, who had things in order. Well, he retreated to the region of Galilee. And the region of Galilee had a much more diverse population than that of Jerusalem and Judea. Galilee was actually once part of the northern kingdom of Israel. After Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, most of the inhabitants, the Jewish inhabitants of that region, had been forcefully um, replaced and deported somewhere else within Assyria. And then they were replaced instead with a native pagan population. Even then, there was still some small remnants of Jews in the land from the northern tribe, And in the Old Testament, there is even an account at one point where these few remnants of Israel tried to teach some of the pagans that had been transported there to be able to worship Yahweh because they were afraid of the God of the region. Ultimately, this produced some kind of half-Jewish population. and some kind of half Jewish identity of worship primarily in the region in the city of Samaria in the region there and Galilee while not associated with the Samaritans was still looked down upon by the Jews from Jerusalem and Judea that whole region was looked down upon but the Jews in Galilee did not intermarry with the gentiles although they did live among them and they did business with them which of course gave the Jews in Jerusalem every reason that they needed or wanted to think that they were less. After the Maccabean revolts and the victory in Judea, Galilee was repopulated with Jews to try and reclaim that region. And all of that resulted so that at the time of Christ, the region of Galilee was very multicultural and multi-ethnic. Much more so than Jerusalem or Judea. And this this diversity in the land allowed Jesus more freedom during His earthly ministry. It allowed Him to move around from town to town, village to village, without forcing the kind of action that conflict in Jerusalem would have led to with the religious leaders there. It was in this environment that Jesus was able to teach and work miracles for years before, according to the Father's timing, he went down to Jerusalem to complete his earthly ministry and his earthly work by dying on the cross. Matthew tells us that when Jesus withdrew from the region, he first went back to Galilee and back to Nazareth, where if you remember from earlier on, after they fled Egypt, they ended up back in, in Nazareth. But soon after, he settled instead in Capernaum which was on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Luke tells us in Luke 4.24 why Jesus didn't remain in his hometown. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Even though Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, the Son of the living God, he was still looked upon with doubt and suspicion by those who knew him as a child those in his hometown, couldn't separate the carpenter's son that they knew, that they watched grow up, from the great teacher that stood before them. Of course, we might be able to sympathize a little bit with those in Nazareth. It can be very challenging to accept somebody as an adult, to accept them with wisdom and authority, when we knew them as a child, when we saw them run around and be, petulant and back-talking to their parents or, or whining and crying or messing their diapers. All these things make it really hard to look upon an adult and see somebody that is worthy of your confidence and following. It can be difficult to accept the command and expertise of someone that we used to instruct. When the student becomes the master, it can be very difficult It's damaging to our pride to recognize that somebody has leapfrogged us in our station or in our ability. Well, Jesus related his experience in this to that of the prophets. Jesus had received a special calling from God. And after receiving their calling from God, the prophets were not the same as they once were. When the prophets received their calling from God, they had been set apart for a unique purpose in the work of God. And while Jesus had always been set apart for that purpose that his father had given him, the people that knew him as a boy weren't so quick and ready to be able to see that and realize that. They struggled to accept these bold claims of authority from the carpenter's son. Well, in truth, many Christians can relate to this, at least to some degree. We are not the same person that we were when Christ saved us. When the Holy Spirit came to indwell us and transformed us, made us a new creation, transferred us from darkness to light, an enemy of God to a friend of God, we are not the same person. Yet that change is often hard for those that are around us to really understand or to accept. Often, this kind of change can cause strain in friendships, cause strain in families, as believers st- seek to live out faithful lives according to what they've been called to. And those that knew them before are confused by the change, don't know how to relate to them, and often feel judged by every new action or decision of the believer. Of course, unlike us, Jesus did not undergo some drastic lifestyle change. He was perfect. He had no reason to change. The difference that set Jesus apart at this time was the authority of his teaching and the growing influence that he would have by those who were following him. See, Jesus did not need to grow in righteousness and in obedience. He had perfectly been righteous and obedient from before time. Though, his obedience to the Father would be displayed in greater ways throughout his earthly ministry. However, Jesus did grow in both wisdom and in favor with God and men. Luke tells us that in Luke 2.52. Remember from the Gospel of Luke, even as a young child, Jesus showed an uncanny ability to remember, to understand, and to interact with the Scriptures. His knowledge and understanding continued to grow. Though, again, the greatest change with Jesus that was seen seemed to be that when he entered into his public ministry, he spoke with an authority. That the people didn't recognize he spoke with the with an authority the people had not seen before because it was an authority that the scribes and the Pharisees did not have and did not know John had been the voice in the wilderness preparing the way making the path for the arrival of the kingdom straight and ready and with his arrest The hour had come for the king who had been revealed in Bethlehem so many years before by the Magi, for this king to take up his mantle, for this king to be the voice of his kingdom, even as he had from the beginning of time been the word of God. So the prophet denied honor in his hometown moved on Jesus left Nazareth and went to the much larger city of Capernaum and the sea that is spoken of in this passage is not talking about the Mediterranean Sea but the Sea of Galilee one thing that I think is of interesting note is that this region part of the historical inheritance of Zebulon and Naphtali was the first part Of the northern king to fall northern kingdom to fall to Assyria and this this region that was the first part of this first area of Israel to fall to Assyria would be the first region to hear the message of the Messiah this region according to Isaiah was prophesied to see a great light Matthew tells us in verses 14 through 16 of our passage That Jesus was is the great light that came to those sitting in darkness it says so that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them the light has dawned this region had surely seen its share of darkness remember this this region was plunged into idolatry under the pagan kings well I call them pagan kings they were Jewish kings but they acted like pagan kings of northern the northern kingdom of Israel it was plunged into the idolatry of the nations around them. They were the first to fall prey to the conquering Assyrians. This region was cut off from the religious center and identity center of, of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And even after the fall of Assyria and then Babylon and Persia, rather than being welcomed back as close brothers as you would think, they were seen by the Jews of Judea and Jerusalem as second-class Israelites. They lived among the Gentiles, and they were seen as being corrupted by them. Of course, the Gentile presence in Galilee points to a very important theme that Matthew has been highlighting about the work that Jesus came to accomplish. Even though Jesus' earthly ministry would be limited almost completely to the Jewish people. The fact that his ministry began among the nations, and that it would ultimately be relaunched after his ascension back to the Father among the nations, showed that the promise made to Abraham, that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, was coming true. God had promised to bless the nations through Abraham, And in Jesus, that promise was being fulfilled. Well, Jesus' ministering among the outcasts and among the Gentiles also proved Matthew's words from Matthew 9.13 where Jesus said, For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus would not spend His time on this earth serving the high and the mighty among Israel. He would spend his time serving and caring for those who were used to being looked down upon and cast aside. The Jewish leaders had expected that the Messiah would come as a great and mighty conquering ruler. They expected this great and mighty ruler would use his power and prestige just as they would if they had it. They expected him to conquer their enemies and then spend his life in comfort among the wealthy and the powerful of the land god however enjoys showing his greatness by using those who are low and considered foolish in the world to confound those who are mighty in this age god sent his son to live a common life and from that lowly position to change the world in all of history Well, it was in the spiritual darkness of this land that Jesus' light would shine forth most brightly. He assumed the leadership of this movement that John had started, that John had been sent ahead of him to begin. This theme of light and darkness will continue throughout Matthew's Gospels. At the beginning of this new public phase of Jesus' ministry, His light is contrasted with the darkness that the people in Galilee found themselves. And later on, at the end of His ministry, it will be the light of Jesus' followers in Galilee that will contrast the darkness that settles over Judea and Jerusalem as the nation of Israel crucified their Messiah. Out of that darkness of Jerusalem at the killing of the Son of God, the light once again would shine brightly out of Galilee. After Jesus' resurrection, it would be in Galilee where He would gather once again with His disciples. And it would be in Galilee that He would send them out to spread the word of His kingdom to all the nations. As Jesus told His disciples in Matthew ten twenty six or 28, have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known what I tell you in the dark say in the light and what you hear whispered proclaim on the rooftops and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell well then that should be obvious if you look at the ministry of Jesus was that Jesus was not concerned with garnering the greatest and mightiest following on this earth. Jesus, in fact, even though He often had thousands of people following Him, He often went so far as to speak in parables, so that the true meaning of His message, the true meaning of what He was saying, would be lost on the vast majority of the people His method was to invest in a select few, to focus on quality of discipleship rather than on quantity. However, after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, he sent his Spirit to be the helpers for his disciples. And at that time, the message that had been veiled in parable, the message that had been veiled in shadow and whisper, was shouted clearly from the rooftops where His disciples would go out with clarity and confidence. And we read in the book of Acts that many multitudes, thousands, were being added to their numbers day by day. But all that would come later. At this point in in Jesus' ministry, He wasn't focused on garnering fame or attention. He was the light of the world Yet his focus was on the work that the Father had given him. He would save all those that the Father had given him. He would do so by imparting his light to a relative few. And then after he was gone once again, those few would set the entire world alight. Sin brings confusion, and it lives in darkness. As in the garden with our first parents, the promise of sin is often insight, previously denied wisdom and understanding, and the freedom to enjoy what was once denied. These are the common promises of sin. Yet every time the result is the same. Sin will invariably, every time, bring greater despair, greater shame, and greater darkness the people in Galilee were in great darkness at the arrival of the Messiah even as the world around us now is and has really always been in most places then as now the only hope for the darkness is the light of the gospel of Christ then and now it was only received by the grace of God Then, as now, it was only received by those who understood their brokenness and who chose in humility to embrace the light rather than to love the darkness. Then, as now, it was the humble who were ready to hear and to believe. The proud and self-assured have always been the hardest to reach they have always been the ones who are most likely to embrace death rather than life. <coughs> well, up into our, up into our passage in the, in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, John the Baptist was the primary figure in the new religious movements that was taking place in Palestine. Then when John was imprisoned, Jesus stepped forward as the intended focus and the purpose of John's message. He is the one, the greater one that would come after John. The one who was greater that John was not even worthy to untie or to tie his sandals. And in verse 17, we see Jesus continuing on with the message. It says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that the voice in the wilderness had been silenced, the Messiah of Israel continued the message himself because when Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom was at hand it was because in him in his presence in the work that he came to accomplish the kingdom was inaugur- was inaugurated in Christ the kingdom was here and after his resurrection his disciples would shout from the rooftops as their, sa- their Savior was seated at the right hand of the Father and the gates of hell would not be able to stand against them. The gates of hell could not thwart the kingdom's advance. We discussed earlier in our, in our study of Matthew how Moses was a type of Messiah. Messiah. But in this particular dynamic, as Jesus being the one coming after and actually leading in, Jesus fulfills more of the role of Joshua than Moses, which shouldn't be too surprising since Jesus' name in Hebrew is Joshua, which means salvation, or Yahweh saves. <laughs> Moses led the people of Israel to, into the, to the promised land, but he was not able to enter. It would be his successor, Joshua, who could lead the people into the promised land. In a similar fashion, John prepared the people for where only Jesus could take them. Well, That Jesus settled in the region of Galilee was an important part of his ministry on earth. The Sea of Galilee would provide much of the transportation as he showed off his power over nature itself, even on that very sea. And as he'd move from shore to shore, moving along with groups of people back and forth from village to village. It would be out of Capernaum that he traveled west to Tyre and northeast to Caesarea Philippi. It was his presence in Galilee that would cause him to travel through Samaria on a trip to Jerusalem. And while going through Samaria, plant seeds of faith that would be harvested mightily by his disciples years long later. And it was in this region that Jesus called his first disciples, as we will see soon enough in, this, in the coming weeks And it would be these disciples who, like their master, would be looked down upon because of the place of their birth. If you remember from his lineage, the Messiah of Israel had been associated with those whom the world might think undesirable. Jesus' ancestors included a woman who seduced her father-in-law, included a pagan prostitute, and it included a woman from a nation long hated for their treatment of Israel and born out of incest. Then Jesus grew up in a region looked down upon by his own people, and in particular in a city looked down upon even in Galilee. His closest friends of the disciples included an oft-hated tax collector and multiple fishermen whose reputation for a lack of refinement I'm guessing is not, was not too different in that time period than it would be today for a commercial fisherman. Throughout his ministry, Jesus continually showed kindness to those that society had cast aside. He healed the diseased and the disabled. He dined with the hated and the sinners. He showed kindness even to the prostitutes. According to Christ, it was such as these that he came to save We serve a Lord whose stature is exceeded by none, yet who continually loves those who are not worthy of love. It is only in a state of brokenness that we can approach the Son of God with faith. The haughty of spirit and the powerful in this world are not easily made to be broken in spirit. Even though a man may be on death's doorstep, if he thinks he was, is well, he will not seek a doctor. No matter how close to death you might be, if you think you are fine, you will refuse help. Yet the man who knows he is sick will go to great lengths to find a doctor so that he might be made well. The greater the sickness, the greater that a man's effort and desire will be, To find someone who can heal him and the greater his appreciation will be if he is healed our sin our our sickness is great indeed when we are shown just how sick we are in the fact that apart from Christ we are dead men walking the only natural response is to cling to Christ as the only cure for our malady because of his ministry and his care for the lowly we know that he will welcome all who come to him with true desires to be made well for those who desire to drink deeply from the waters of life that only he can give well we have talked a little bit about the importance of the region of Galilee in particular the city of Capernaum in the ministry of Jesus One very sobering thought for us should be that even though Jesus graced Capernaum with so much of His teaching and His miracles and His time, that city would be rebuked for its lack of belief. Matthew records in chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus said, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus did come to heal the sick. But the spiritually sick are not made well simply by being near to him. Time spent with Jesus, time spent among the things of Jesus, time spent in the church and around Christians does not make one a Christian. The region in and around Capernaum was blessed with a great gift during the earthly ministry of Christ. The the whole earth dwelled in darkness and yet it was there in this region that Jesus began His ministry And it is there that He will proclaim His message of hope where there had been only despair. Where He would bring light where there had been only darkness. Where He would bring life where there had been only death. That city served as a monument to mankind's ability to choose blindness rather than sight. To see truth. To see beauty. And choose instead... To embrace lies and distortions that city is a monument to the harsh reality that for some greater opportunity only means greater judgments just as the gospel is the breath of life to those who are alive it is the breath of death to those who are perishing Beloved, our salvation is not our existing close to Jesus or in general proximity to the things of Jesus. Our salvation exists in our being united to Jesus. United with Jesus. Do not be content with just being near to the doctor of your soul if you would be well then if you, you must know him must cry out to him in faith and just as we we cannot delay and use the excuses to say i will take care of tomorrow what i can do today do not delay the decision to be faithful don't delay the decision to follow christ in the radical obedience to which you have been called Cast aside whatever it is that is holding you back from embracing the fullness of life that he offers. Tomorrow may always seem like a better day to let go of childish things and to get serious about living faithfully and consistently, yet tomorrow is not guaranteed, and many lives are wasted or made ineffective because of the vain hope of tomorrow. And the promise of doing better tomorrow. If you are counting on tomorrow, if you are waiting for tomorrow to finally repent of the sin that today you allow yourself to embrace, remember that the blessing of exposure to the gospel and the grace and power present in the body of Christ, when they are ignored and rejected, they serve to heap greater condemnation upon yourself. The things of Christ will never leave anyone unchanged. The Word of God and His presence among His people will either make you more like Christ or it will make you more guilty of His blood and more deserving of greater wrath and punishment when you inevitably stand before His throne. Life is offered today. The message remains, repent for the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. And as surely as Israel was judged for the rejection of the Messiah, according to the promise of John and Jesus, so is the whole earth being prepared for judgment. The Word of God, His people, and the gospel by which they are saved are the light of the light of Christ, are the soul light in the darkness of this fallen and cursed world. And light has a habit of exposing what you may wish to remain hidden. The hearts, the intentions, and the deeds of men will all be exposed if you try to hide them in this present darkness, it will only mean that it will not be the soft and soothing light of the Gospel that exposes them and removes their shame from you. It will mean that in the terrible day of judgment, for all those who loved darkness rather than light, that all that they sought, worked so hard to keep hidden, all of that will be exposed By the fiery wrath of God and in that day there will be no balm to smooth and no one to bear their shame but themselves yet today for all who embrace it there is hope there is freedom there is life tomorrow is not promised and tomorrow will be full of all of its own problems today is the day to believe today is the day to embrace the call of christ and finally step out in obedience to those things that you know he has called you to that you have not desired for yourself today the day is the day to obey and faithfully serve our glorious king of all creation the light of dawn that chases away the darkness Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Father, we thank you for the warnings in your word. Not that they are always easy or pleasant to hear, but it is the loving voice of our Father Calling us to walk away from death, to leave behind the things that poison us, and to embrace life and true joy, to embrace His kingdom. <coughs> Father, grant us freedom from those sins that we all too often embrace. Grant us repentance from those things that hold us back. Grant us faithfulness. Help us to stand strong, to be a a bright and shining light in this community as the darkness expands, as it deepens. May we be a beacon of hope and life. Father, make us faithful. Help us to rest in your Son and to glory in what he has done for us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper together. I just want to encourage you with the same message that we've been hearing, which is simply to turn from sin and to cling to Christ. If, If that is your reality this morning, that you have repented of your sin and you are clinging to Christ you're not you're not clinging to your traditions you're not clinging to how good of a life you live you're not clinging to how much of the Bible you know you're not clinging to any of the things that you have done or you can stand on but you are clinging only to Christ that like the lowly sinners the outcasts that Jesus showed mercy and compassion to who, who knew their sin, who knew their lowliness, and saw the goodness and the mercy of Christ and called out to Him in faith to trust it in, in Him. If, if, if you are like them and have found your righteousness not in yourself, but in who Christ is and what He has done, and claimed that for yourself by faith as God has promised to give us to give everyone who calls out to his son. If that is true for you, then I do, in just a moment, invite you to come up, to partake, to take part of this, this visual reminder, this tangible thing that we can hold on to to remind us of what it means to have faith in Christ, to take of his body and of his shed blood, to, to consume them as our sustenance, his sacrifice our life, His shed blood, our hope, the the new covenant sealed by our Savior's blood by which in faith we are made to stand confident before the Holy Judge. So if, if that is the reality that you live in, that you are clinging to Christ, you are holding on to Him, then I invite you to come forward to grab of the elements of the the bread and the juice and hold on to them just for a moment and then we'll partake of them together.